Hello, Brad here. Just to say we're super proud that the Friday 5pm podcast is sponsored by the Malt Miller, the UK's best home brew store. We use the Malt Miller for all of our homebrew experiments, as well as tapping them up for advice and binging on their awesome YouTube channel all the time. That's why whenever we release a homebrew video, we put a recipe kit live on the Malt Miller, so you can brew with the exact same amazing ingredients that we did. The same ingredients used by pro brewers. So alongside the Malt Miller's nitro-flushed hops, cold-stored yeast and milled-to-order malts, you can pick up recipe kits for our Five Points Best Bitter, Russian River West Coast IPA, and now the fastest beer in the world, a hazy session IPA that goes from grain to glass in less than 48 hours. Sign up to their newsletter at tinyurl.com forward slash maltmiller to get 5% off your first order. With the Malt Miller's amazing customer service and Johnny's 48-hour recipe, you could order the ingredients on a Monday and be drinking the beer by the weekend. Speaking of which, it's Friday. It's 5pm. So enjoy this week's Friday 5pm podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 6 of The Bubble. Uh, this week we are talking to Evan from The Colonel about cheese. Yeah, so we had a huge social response to this one, uh, which was totally out of the blue. I just put a photo of, of some bottles of Colonel with the mixer. I thought I was being arty. It was quite a shit photo, but everyone's very excited to hear this one, and, and so you should be. Uh, we, we do talk quite a bit about beer, because it's almost impossible not to when you're being plied with, with Colonel Saison, Export Stout, Pale Ales. Um, but yeah, the main thing we wanted to talk about with Evan was cheese because not everyone knows this, but his origin story is he was working in cheese, went over to America, uh, to educate some Americans about cheese. Cause all they know is a hundred slices you. of American cheese. Um, and yeah, they, they showed him beer and sort of his analytical brain latched onto beer like it had with cheese going, well, similar processes, there's origins, there's, um, sort of a farmhouse approach to these, some of these styles that he took a huge interest to and that's kind of where Colonel came from so you get the origin story and then a ton of stuff about mountain cheesemakers yeah I, I just really love going down to the Colonel they're sort of one of my first beers like to get me into craft beer properly when I first moved to London um, and just sitting down with him he's a real fascinating person and he knows so so much about cheese and obviously about making really good beer Mm. and sort of listening to those parallels and just I mean his brain is a sponge when it comes to making artisans just needs a little squeeze and (laughs) you're away yeah Um, and it was really enjoyable and we tried some amazing cheeses I still don't know if I'm any the wiser and (laughs) how a lot of cheese is made because it's so complicated but it was a really really good day out Yes, it was a great day out. We spent a couple of hours uh, well beyond what we recorded in the podcast chatting about beer and cheese um, and the beer scene as well. Um, And they are actually reopening an arch hopefully very soon so you'll be able to have the experience that we did hopefully with such delicious cheese. Um, But before then, uh, tune into this. This is Evan O'Reardon of Colonel talking about fromage. Yeast infection. Do you want to t- talk us through the, the cheese, Evan? Saying you are the uh, the expert. 
What, what, what are we? What are we going to start with? Uh... Let, let's start with the cheese that you've uh, you've brought, which is yeah, under the stinky blue that Rob's afraid, like <laughs> gingerly <laughs> removing the paper. Most of my experiences uh, with British cheeses. So what we tend to have, because um, and because of our neighbours, are uh, things that hail from the British Isles. Uh, you've brought some as well, so that's good. Uh, my knowledge of French cheese is less specific. However, we do have uh, one of our team downstairs worked selling Comté cheese in the Borough Market for three years. Huh. Nothing but Comté, so I actually probably won't say anything about it. <laughs> we'll just have to get Alex in to, uh, to fill us in because uh, it's not my area of expertise, um, which is not to say that it's not delicious because Comté can be one of the best cheeses of all time. Uh the Tom you've brought, I, I don't know any more about that. Yeah, so I made a fool of myself by saying I brought this this Tom cheese, and Tom is just the, the shape, right? It's like saying yeah. I've brought this bottle of yeah, beer. Yeah, like a truckle or something you might, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. In, in cheese terms. <laughs> um, yeah, it kind of just means form or shape, I think, in terms of, so you can have a Tom made of, in anywhere from any type of milk. Yeah. Uh, as to which one it is, we'll just have to taste it and find yeah. out. Yeah, That's absolutely. That's part of the fun. Exactly. Um, so the two cheeses that you've put out are, um, well, I'm not, I'm not going to guess, but one's pale and one's slightly yellow, listeners. Are you referring to that as the pale and that's yeah, the I yellow? Yeah, I think that's the pale one, <laughs> yes. They are quite similar, I'll give you that, <laughs> no, 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 I know what you mean, but you could easily, well, you couldn't swap them around, but either descriptor could work for either cheese. <laughs> um, I pulled out some Lancashire because it's delicious. Uh, and there is a particular... About cheeses like Lancashire and Cheshire specifically, there's an old-fashioned Englishness, maybe also like Wensleydale. Just, there's an English taste which you never capture in any other part of the world, which is that sort of slightly lactic, yogurty crumbliness. And it's most specifically that texture. The texture is one thing you can never imitate on a larger scale with cheese production. Mm. You know, if a cheese is on a handmade scale, the curds are broken up by hand, the cheeses are you know, packed into moulds by hand, you get a certain texture or you're looking for a certain texture. And different cheeses are made in different ways to get different textures. But the texture of something like Lancashire is just, you know, it cannot be produced on a larger scale. So anytime you have something with that sort of texture, you, you know, that just feels like it's, you know, there's a man or a woman there doing that on their own with their fingers. And that's, you know, just you feel that. Yeah. You feel that connection with the soil, with the animals, and with a historical tradition. And the you cheese said it- on the left is, made, is, is cheddar, and one of the reasons the cheddar is so ubiquitous now is because you can approximate a certain cheddary texture with a larger scale production. So in the sense that it lends itself to scaling a bit more than, say, other cheese recipes. Part of the process is slightly more amenable to industrialization to a degree. So that's one of the reasons why... Well, a lot of the reason that cheddar is so ubiquitous now, I think, is, is because during especially the Second World War all the resources, in this case milk, had to be pooled in the most efficient manner possible. So milk, there was no way of keeping milk fresh in those days, really. Refrigeration wasn't common. So turning it into cheese was the way of harvesting and, and keeping all of the, you know, the protein, the energy, the calories and all that sort of stuff. And obviously in service of the war effort, you want it in a form that would last a long time. Uh, cheddar was this type of cheese that would fit into this newly industrialized process the best. And so basically all milk had to go into cheddar production for those years, and even after, at the exclusion of all the other cheese recipes out there. So that's why we have 
cheddar is a ubiquitous English cheese. Everywhere. But things like Cheshire and Lancashire, etc., Carefilly, Wensleydale, all suffered not quite extinction, although in some cases they were extinct. Uh, Spark and Home make uh, the guys who make the blue cheese that you brought. They make a red Leicester, which is another old recipe, which before they revived had not been seen in an artisanal kind of farmhouse um, manner for you know a generation or two wow. because all of the milk was taken and given to make cheddar is there books the is there books on old recipes of cheese making and stuff that people are looking into to get yes. different vintages yeah, and yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so there's a cheese historian out there there's a martin there cornell are, of cheese there are a couple um so i used to as i said i used to work at neil's yard dairy uh randolph hodgson was the man who set up neil's yard dairy back in the late 70s um He's still, well, I don't know what's his position in the dairy anymore, but he, he doesn't, he basically moved to a farm in Hereford uh, about 10 years ago and now lives there with his family. Um, and basically what he's been doing is looking through old recipes and recreating them on a tiny little scale himself. Um, and it's fascinating. I mean, the things that he's producing are really, yeah, they're, they're nothing like what we perceive cheese to be especially with cheddar because that's the one that's been kind of not necessarily perfected but perfected in a kind of a a slightly industrialised sense a a bit like like lager has been in beer it's become the thing that people think about when they think about cheese yeah 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 yeah. the rhythm of cheese making doesn't give one quite the same ability to improvise as say we have in brewing if you think of say winemakers as well you know they only get one vintage a year to try and perfect what they do so they don't tend to risk that by doing anything wacky or you know uh so the same with cheesemakers you know that uh, you know a, a comte like that will be at least 18 months old so you know you've put a lot of effort into it and you have to get all these things right in order for the cheese to come out well so when you start tweaking what you're doing the risk of you turning out something that's maybe not great is it's quite a big risk to take yeah. so you kind of you, you understand why these sort of things aren't messed with too much but also there's that link to tradition you know that that if you come from a background where cheese was made this way for generations then you know there are good reasons that it was made that way for generations but it comes which isn't to say that you shouldn't go and look at those reasons and investigate what could be done better or what was by accident or you know what's essential to this recipe but there isn't quite the sense of playfulness playfulness is the word i was going to use yeah Mm -hmm. i wanted to say innovation but you it's know, more like the, sort of more like the Lambic world, I suppose. It's a bit it, like you, you're you're more committed. You, you know, it's in barrel for one year to three years. Yes. You can't play with it quite as much. Yes. Whereas with the more modern styles, you can just churn out in a matter of weeks. Um, That's exactly it. That's Lancashire, made by Graham Kirkham in uh, Goosenar in Lancashire. Uh, there are not that many raw milk Lancashire still made and there are still parts of the process specifically with Lancashire that are really that are really old fashioned you know for, for example with most cheeses you know one day's milking will be a blend of morning and evening milk and then they'll make cheese from that and that will be a specifically separate batch to the next day's cheese making whereas with Lancashire you'll always keep back a portion of the curd and let it sit out overnight so it kind of ripens and sours and then that bit would then be added to the next days so it's almost Solera Solera cheese over a short period of time but yes but actually one of the fascinating things about well specifically in terms of thinking of modern cheese versus old fashioned one is with cheese 
you know, the, the starting point of turning milk into cheese is adding, adding. Well, this is the thing. It's the modern way of looking at it is adding starter culture, which is a you know, a little blend of bacteria that start the, the souring process. Um, and so, exactly, if you keep some of your curd one day to the next, you're allowing those souring bacteria to kind of keep going and going. A lot of the modern cheesemakers, uh, cheese making, has the souring happen in a really quick fashion because it's much more efficient to get it done in a couple of hours, whereas the old-fashioned recipes tend to take a longer period of time. So somebody making stilton to an old recipe will let the curd sit out overnight and slowly get more acidity, whereas you can speed up that process by using a different bacterial starter to get things going quicker. Is there a benefit to giving it longer? Texturally, yes. But then economically speaking, you you need more space, you need more equipment, the chances of something going wrong are much higher. So it tends not to be done that frequently. But that yeah, those sort of that sort of time given to bacterial ripening of milk is one of the key the key differences between a lot of the old fashioned recipes and the modern ones. Um You've, you've t- <laughs> we haven't really done this linearly, have we? We're no. Already, we're already talking about things that we should have uh, introduced <laughs> yeah, ages ago. Say, we're we're gonna, we've gone straight into the deep end of bacterial <laughs> starter culture. And we haven't even explained it properly, you see. So even I'm kind of thinking I didn't really explain that very well. <laughs> I think we could maybe rewind and start with uh, your sort of journey into cheese. Where did that begin? That would be uh, – that, that makes more sense. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. <laughs> so, that's the rewind. Yeah, rewind button. <laughs> Uh, I, I I grew up in cheese, so it's not, it's not a there's place. no journey at all. <laughs> <laughs> my my dad is a he's he was he's retired now, but he's a was a professor of uh, microbiology and dairy technology in, in Waterford, in the southeast of Ireland. So his, I mean, you know, when I was ten, I think my first science project in school was making cheese, kind of like a halloumi cheese, and basically. <laughs> I think the project was adding more salt. So you make one batch with no salt and make one batch with half the amount, one with the normal amount, then one with twice the amount of salt, and then measure the amount of bacteria that survived, uh, which decreased as the salt increased. Um, And, I mean, through the work that he did, I mean, most of his students would have gone on to um, work in the bigger dairies. I mean, Ireland is full of... Milk cheese. and cows and cheese and, and butter. <laughs> so there's obviously and ice cream. So a lot of people have gone and work at ice cream. A lot of the micro, microbiological students that he taught also got into brewing. So he would have sent a lot of students off to Fuller's over here. Um, one of his students was Fergus Fitzgerald, who's the head brewer at Adams. Right. Really? Um, yeah. yeah. Um, and so, yeah, he would have set up that first placement for Fergus at, um, at Fuller's, I believe. Um, but anyway, he also knew a lot of the smaller cheesemakers in Ireland, of which, like in the late 70s, there was kind of uh, slightly ahead of its time, but there would have been no small cheesemaking in Ireland. But a lot of people in the late 70s kind of moved to the West Coast to kind of, you know, escape the city and do something a bit different with their lives. And a lot of, a lot of them sort of, well, not a lot, but quite a lot of them, I suppose, set up dairies making cheese. In, in, in southwest of Ireland um, and actually I don't know is it perhaps slightly random but of say the 12 or 15 Irish cheesemakers in the south of Ireland at that point in time it seems like about 10 of them had kids that were my age 
so the next generation and we all ended up going to the same school together so I knew a lot of these cheesemakers in Ireland through through their kids or through my dad or you know through eating the cheese uh, I moved to London in January 1999 so there's 20 years there's another anniversary there you go. To celebrate. that's Hooray. why we did the podcast now there you go <laughs> and I didn't have any I just finished college I'd spent six months travelling and then moving from you know Ireland is quite small so first step when you leave Ireland is you stop in London for a bit and I never left but uh, yeah I just looked around for a job and there was a job going at uh, as a cheesemonger in Neil's Yard Dairy in Covent Garden so I went in and dropped a few names and they were <laughs> you know so and so and I was like well I, I know their daughter you know. Um, <laughs> And uh, well, it worked. So where were you? Where were you selling to? So you working for Neil's Yard Dairy and then going to restaurants? I worked at the, and... No, no, I just worked in the shop. So I just did retail. Um, I ran the shop in Covent Garden for a few years, and then when I was, I mean, I spent eight years doing a master's and a PhD. So I used to just do that on Saturdays. So I was there for seven years in total. Um, and then I got asked to run a friend's cheese stall in the Borough Market so I was there for another three years after that so I sold Carefilly cheese uh, yeah just Carefilly? yep just Carefilly we just had Carefilly from uh, yeah Slandawi Breffy in West Wales at that point is where it was made um, made by the Talons and so we have the stall just sold Carefilly that was good and did you during those so that's ten, 10 years in the cheese industry in London is that right? It was probably 11. I miscounted somewhere. Right. <laughs> um, did you see a huge upturn in the fortunes of the cheese the cheese industry during that time? Was it... I feel like a stall that only sold Carefilly, you'd have to have a pretty broad audience to be able to make that a business. This summer, I'm going to be hosting talks at the Manchester, Bristol and London Craft Beer Festivals, giving festival goers the chance to attend tutored tastings, rare beer pours, meet the brewers and even guided tours of the bars. These three festivals are the highlights of my events calendar, featuring some of the world's best breweries with delicious restaurant pop-ups, great music and a really welcoming party atmosphere. It's the third year I've been hosting the We Are Beer Tastings table, but for the first time I'm delighted to offer all of our listeners, viewers and Patreons £5 off a ticket when you use the code CBC5. Just hit the link in the description to buy. See you there. The fortunes of a store like that, I think, are more specifically tied up with what the borough market was and, and how what it has become. Hmm. I mean, I think the first inklings of a borough market kind of were around 1999 or 1998. They did a few like one-off little pop-ups, like once every three months or something, and then it became once a month and blah blah blah. blah. Um, but the period I was there from when was probably 2006 or six to 2000. And around 2006 2007 it started getting really busy but like really busy with people who were actually still coming to shop and then as it got more and more popular it got really busy but really busy with people who just wanted to hang around or take photographs have a taster and take a photo precisely or to get a takeaway burger or coffee or beer or whatever just and they stand around and get in the way of anybody who wanted to go shopping (laughs) so you know at a certain point it just kind of started suffering from the weight of its own popularity which Mm. is it's not necessarily it's a very hard thing to deal with you know I mean 
you know, we had a tap room here that we had to close because it became too popular to function. So, yeah. you know, they're, they're all, you know, these things happen. And there's so many, I'm sure, of your favorite bars or restaurants that are you know, become too busy. You can't even get a table there anymore or whatever, you know. Or the locals that made the place great can't get in because so many people are coming from out of town just to go and see what it, the fuss is about. You yep. know? So Borough Market suffered from that. Um, but at a certain point in time, it was because we were there, you know, selling cheese. There's a Comte stall that just sold Comte. You know, there was a Stilton stall that just sold Stilton. You know, there was the focus of those sort of producers was really quite tight on one specific thing. And you know, if somebody does one specific thing, they do it really terrible. well. Yeah, because they, otherwise they wouldn't be doing anything. So <laughs> They'd be out of biz. Was yeah. it just yeah, yeah. was it just a best in shoe for a market at the time? Then just you go down and it really just had the best of the best. There was enough really really good things, and there still are. But there was always a bit of you know filler and stuff like this. And there, you know there was also a kind of a you know there were people who were there who had been trading there for for maybe generations before that who had specific spots in the market that they had special leases to. And, you know, there was no way of being able to influence what they would do. So, you know, they could just basically sell whatever old crap they wanted. <laughs> uh, and, you know, yeah, there's just choices that people make that kind of serve as short-term making yeah, a bit of money yeah. rather than how can we build this whole thing in a long-term and in a sustainable way. Now, that, I mean, the market still asks itself that question a lot and they're, you know, they have been doing a lot of work to try and figure out what the focus of the market should be and how it should move forward but you know it, there was a period of time when maybe the management wasn't quite as focused on what it as it should be yeah, yeah. less on the long term and more yeah I mean I, I think it took everybody by surprise because you know that sort of the way that that area was gentrified I mean now you would kind of look at it ahead of time and you'd know exactly what was going to happen but then you know it just took everybody by surprise mm. so there's a borough market trust which owns all the land and the buildings around there and you know it was really run down and nothing was happening and suddenly the market made it really popular suddenly they could charge more money for rent suddenly they had loads of money but it's a trust you know what can it you know they kind of you know they really wanted to make a lot of money but then they realised well we're a trust None of us can make a profit from this. You yeah. Know. This, you know, what's the point of it? What do we do with this money once we've made it? And you know, that's still the question I think they, they ask themselves. Mm. But then, of course, that changes other things because there used to be quite a job looking after the market. But now, you know, looking after their property portfolio is a far more significant thing because that's for them now. Is you know, that's where the money is. Yep. But then I suppose they have to kind of also think about how the market affects the value of the property around there. You know, how it makes it how it raises its value by having that market there in a way that's you know healthy and functioning as part of a community not just as a an attraction for tourists one of those things where you start with one job and then 10 years later you're like this wasn't what i applied <laughs> exactly. for, <laughs> for how did we get here property management yeah i love that stuff and drinking it for years drinking it for years drinking it for years drinking it for years you know, I, I moved there recently decided to add more hops to it. To it. Hops to it. You know, I, I moved there recently decided to add more hops to it. To it. Hops to it. Yeah, well, so we talked about the Lancashire. Um, and you talked about how cheeses, you know, it's very hard to recreate that crumbly texture that you're enjoying uh, there. Um, and you said that you can't really do that elsewhere either. So is there huge variation around the world in the cheeses that are made? You said you don't know much about French cheese. Is it that different? 
Because I feel like it's a bit like beer where people don't realise how different beer can be until you really get involved and you're like, oh, well, there's hops from these places. There's millions of kinds of yeast. There's different styles that are historical and not. There are. I mean, at least with cheese, it's geographically slightly more specific because there aren't that many... Um, I mean, I what? It's like 80% of the world don't really have the gene to allow people to produce lactase, which allows us, generally Western Europeans, to digest milk. Mm. Most... You know, all mammals lose it after weaning, and apparently most humans do too. So, you know, the cheese-making, well, any sort of dairy consumption is really limited to Western Europe, Northwestern Europe, um, and a few other places like, you know, I don't know, Maasai in Kenya, or, or there's certain other cultures where milk drinking is still part of adult life. Um, in terms of the animals used, that varies I mean, if we just stick with cows and goats and sheep, <laughs> there are other possibilities, um, <laughs> but they don't come up quite so often. Um, you know, different type of land will lend itself to different type of animals. You know, the, the bigger and steeper the mountains get, you have less cows, you have more goats and sheep. Um, certain places have historical reasons for favouring one over the other. I mean, what we what we are left with now, I suppose, is is a hugely dependent on the history that some place has gone through, in the sense of. England went through industrialization a lot earlier than, say, France or Italy. So the effect of industrialization has had a longer impact on British cheeses and in certain ways pushed the historical memory of how to make a certain cheese further away from people's minds, whereas that might not have been the case in Italy or France. Um, the other thing as well, which you find yeah, Italy, France, places where... Like the traditions in the mountains tend to be really strong because, you know, mountains aren't really... You can't really build a factory in a mountain. You know, the, the mountain places and mountain people tend to hold on to their... They're also inaccessible, so they have less interaction with the outside world, less exchange of ideas. Um, and maybe because of that or despite that, you know, mountain people tend to hold on to their traditions more strongly. So, in you know, we don't have quite anything quite like the Alps here. But, you know, each different valley in the mountain can be adjacent to another one but actually getting from one valley to the other is hard which means that over a period of time one valley will do a cheese like a Comte and the next one will do a very similar cheese in a Gruyere style or the next valley will have one called Abondance and the next one will have a valley and it will be Beaufort and they'll do they're all very similar recipe cheeses but each one will have its own unique signature and that becomes slightly because of just the geography and the terrain of the mountains kind of keeping people slightly separate from each other in this case although they're all making a similar in a sense style of cheese yeah. so Comte kind of can stand in for a lot of different hard mountain cheeses which have that similar sort of you know that sweet dense textured nutty sort of flavours they can appear in many different forms across all these different cheeses made in the mountains either in France or in Switzerland or in Austria or north of Italy um, yeah with brewing the history that we're left with now is most particularly uh, an urban it's an urban phenomenon. It's an urban. It's an industry. Whereas a lot of the cheeses that we're talking about here are referring back to something that was the way things were done before industrialization kicked in. Yeah, because there must have been loads of people who were sorry, loads of different industries that were like like the cheese industry you just described. So beer, back when <clears throat> you wouldn't have had access to hops from all around the world, you'd have used. I always love the story of Gosa about how the, the water they were using was salty. So Gosa, they adapted what they were brewing so yeah. that the salted water yeah. worked for them. Yeah. Uh, and then obviously on a different river around the corner, 
it wouldn't have been anything like that. It would have been a Berliner Weiss, which has the lactic quality but doesn't have the salt. Yeah. And so, yeah, we don't, you know, like most of our tradition in terms of pale ales, IPAs, porters, stouts, those sort of things have been domesticated to a certain degree, that we have yeast that can now do that fermentation in, you know, four or five days, you know. Whereas if you're leaving things to wild yeast in the the lambic style, then you're, you know, you're putting something in a barrel and leaving it there for three years before you'll consider touching it. Um, So, yeah, apart from the lambic style of making beer, that's, for a brewer, is probably one of the few points of contact with a culture that predates something industrial. Yeah. Um, are, are there wild cheeses being made? Uh, yeah, but I mean, I know what you're coming from. There's no, <laughs> there's no wild beers being made anyway either. Right, in yeah. the sense that they're not really. Uh, I mean, there's so much physical and you know, man-made intervention into all of these processes that it's kind of like in cheese making. You have to make certain choices that are going to dictate what the cheese is going to come out like. So if you, even at the point of it being milk, you know, if you just leave the milk, it'll just curdle yeah which you could call cheese if you want but it's not necessarily gonna be very tasty it might approximate something like yogurt if you're lucky but to get it into something that we recognize as cheese involves specifically doing things to it so if you if you you know if you if a curd appeared in your milk spontaneously which is possible but kind of unlikely you would then have to decide what to do with it so depending on how you treated that curd you might end up with something more like a you know one of those pyramid shaped soft goat's cheeses or if you cut it up really finely you'd, you'd end up with more of a cheddar texture or you know if you treated it more gently and loosely you could get something like the texture of a blue cheese so in order for it to become cheese you have to address it as a human being and make a certain decision so it can't just happen wild in the sense of naturally yeah um so in that case, now you can let you know. So we were talking earlier about um, starter culture bacteria. There are ways of allowing whatever natural starter culture bacteria are in the world around you to get in your milk and allow that to do the initial acidification. It's very difficult to get anything either obviously consistent, but that would be more kind of similar to the way in which a lambic brewer will, you know, put their wort into a cool ship and and leave it out into the you know for the elements to, you know, drop there wild yeast into it the thing about cheese making is then there's always uh, pretty much always a second step at least with these sort of cheeses would all have um, a rennet added to them and rennet is an enzyme that's um, traditionally got from a calf's stomach which basically coagulates liquid milk into solid proteins so in order for cheese to happen you have to have that phase of turning the liquid which is the milk into something solid which is the cheese and that's is done now by the addition of rennet so i mean there are other ways of doing it slightly but none of them you still have to have a process of somebody adding something it won't happen spontaneously mm. yeah so you know it, it there, there isn't it's like with anything you know even when you, we talk about wild beers there's still you know the man-made intervention has to be is always a huge part of it yeah so how is uh, the- and that's you know like if you look at some of the wine world you know they'll I mean, some people talk about natural wines, which is a slightly ridiculous word. But then, you know, talking about organic food is a slightly ridiculous because organic means something specific that exists independent of how something is grown. But, you know, people will talk about low-intervention wines, which if you know something about how that's produced kind of leads you to think that, you know, certain things are let, you know, happen on their own course. 
rather than having somebody coming along and telling that wine exactly what to do. And that's part of the joys. It of doesn't it. roll off the tongue quite as easily, though. The, <laughs> no intervention wine. No intervention <laughs> wine, but no. it might take off. <laughs> uh, but you, yeah, I don't, you see it around. You see it around. It might be a slightly crass question, but so there's the, the story rolled out about how most alcohols were made, uh, or rather discovered, and it's usually by accident. How would cheese have been discovered if it's got so much intervention in it? Uh, by accident. Right. <laughs> uh, most likely that, you know, I mean, it, it, if it, it's probably just that somebody's, you know, uh, like a, a, a stomach of an animal, a mammal, was used to carry some milk around. And it turned solid. And, yeah, right. for whatever, it, it hit the right kind of interaction of certain random circumstances that so the, the stomach would contain the rennet stomachs would have been used and sewn up to carry things in you know liquid assuming they could be made you know sewn tightly and made watertight you know if you're thinking a few thousand years ago there really wasn't much else one could no make fewer plastic like, shopping bags yeah precisely <laughs> yes um yeah You've got the agitation as well by somebody carrying it around on their back. You know, maybe a bit of heat from being out in the sun. You know, all those things are kind of... These days, if you're making cheese, you're controlling the temperature of the milk. You're controlling the amount of stirring and agitation that's going on, you know, um, of the milk to begin with, etc., etc. So, I mean, you can maybe just guess that something like that happened. Open up your sheep's stomach to unveil your milk and you've got a camembert sitting there? (laughs) That's exactly how I picture it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what you need is an there oven and some garlic. There are still being made inside animal stomachs. So you know, really, there's, I think it's a is it were they is it a Georgian tradition? Uh, yeah, I think it, wow. I think in Georgia or Central Asia, anyway. Somewhere. Well, if we if we put the innards of a sheep inside a sheep's stomach and eat it once a year, then I don't see why that's any weirder by the Georgians there. <laughs> no, 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 not weird at all. <laughs> Beer break. What have we got here? Uh, another pale. This one I think is nice Galaxy Mosaic. Oh, glorious. Delicious. Loads of um, like almost strawberry from the mosaic. Like really, really fruity mosaic. Yeah, the Galaxy's been quite dank this year. So it feels like it doesn't stand up quite so much as well as on its own, but something fruity like mosaic with it might help. Yeah. Cheese and beer. Are you one of these people that is like... Because some people are like, no, wine's always better with cheese. Some people always like beer is better with cheese. And some people are like, well, it depends what you're bloody eating. But there are very, 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 very few red wines that work well with cheese. Hmm. Just the, the tannins and the weight, I find, don't work at all. Um, whites can be universally good in many ways. Yep. Beer does have more breadth in terms of different flavors and different ways it working together. Um but I personally tend not to like to be prescriptive about such things. Just, you know, if I run cheese and beer tastings, which I do on occasion, we'll just put down five beers and five cheeses and we'll taste them all together. And say, <laughs> like we'll see you after the coma. Figure yeah, exactly. <laughs> figure, out what, figure out what we like, you know. And there might be a wine in there too or there might be a cider or whatever. Um, yeah. It's, um, I mean, with beer, you just have, with beers like pale ales or IPAs, it's, it's mostly the bitterness you have to worry about. It can be quite harsh on certain cheeses, especially if the cheeses themselves have a little bit of bitterness in, which often, you know, the rind can often have a certain bitterness, especially with softer, 
mold ripened cheeses. Uh, and those things can, you know, if you have bitterness upon bitterness, can just amplify things into a slightly awkward degree. Um, the same a little bit with the bitterness you get in stouts, but it never seems to be quite as much of an issue because, I mean, with the dark beers, as long as they have enough body, then the sweetness and, and the caramel and stuff just work really well. But something like the Comte is the sort of cheese that works really well with a pale ale or an IPA because it's got enough sweetness to bounce off it. It doesn't have any bitterness and just the it's just such a generous kind of that fudgy sort of texture oh, so with weird. a with something like that usually usually works well. Fudgy is the right word. It. I tried someone was really struggling. I was like, "That's gorgeous." I kept thinking of maple, um, golden syrup. I think um, just something wickedly syrupy about it. Mm. Yep, I'm yeah, sure what you mean. Um, so we haven't actually talked about why, well, how I knew you were a cheese lover, um, which is the, the origin of Colonel has a slight link to cheese in that it was it was during a trip that you discovered American beer. Yeah, I'd finished working for Neil's Yard. I think this was in 2007. And I was, yeah, I was working in the, in the Burr Market. But Neil's Yard approached me and asked if I would go to the States for a month to help one of their customers over there set up a cheese shop in their, in their shop. Um, this was Whole Foods Market in, in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. So I went over. Uh, yeah, it's not a bad gig, you know, get paid for <laughs> doing six weeks work in New York. Uh, they put me up with some uh, friends in, in Williamsburg, uh, which wasn't a shabby spot either. Um, it um, blew my mind. One of the guys who I met there, uh, who was working at the Whole Foods at the shop uh, at that point in time, is is still working with us here now. He's been here for seven years with us, um, which is nice. So we actually have four ex-cheesemongers amongst our staff, <laughs> like professionals. Hence I mean, the never mind the ones. Yeah, yeah, never mind the ones that just eat cheese because they like it. <laughs> uh, we have we have professionals. Um, But in America, when I was over there, I would spend the day, you know, teaching, teaching the guys at the shop all about the different cheeses and where they come from, who made them, what sort of ingredients went into them, what the historical importance of this recipe was, you know, how it related to, you know, the land that it came from or the different pastures that the animals were feeding on or what made one cheese better than another or different than another or why this one was better at this age or maybe or maybe you might want to try it a bit younger or whatever um, and after we finished work the guys would take me for a beer and we'd go literally about two blocks away there was a bar called DBA's in the Lower East Side which you know for somebody coming from London to find a knock up somewhere with like 40 or 50 taps <laughs> yeah. kind of, with you know everything that we probably think is kind of completely normal now especially in what was it 2007 you said 2007? Yeah. yeah I mean so exactly it hadn't happened here yet but you know it was already kind of yeah on its way swinging in the states and they, yeah they just um, would kind of pull a couple of beers off and recommend some and then tell me well this is made by this brewer and to this recipe and this place and you know it, my I had the mental structure that I could understand it all so I'd never had those bits of information put in there before so it was like oh well, this makes complete sense. A beer has an origin in the same way that a piece of cheese does. It's just I never knew anything about it. I just kind of thought it came out of a tap on a bar. 
if it was dark, it was Guinness. And if it was flat, it was real ale. And if it was pale and watery, then it was Foster's or Carlsberg or whatever. Um, suddenly you realize there's a whole world out there that you never thought about. And it's just kind of like, and that, that's what blew my mind. Is like, oh, well, yeah, we can apply everything we know to thinking about beer in the same way we've done about not just cheese, the other food. I mean, we've mentioned the Borough Market before, but that whole, you know, cheese is only part of that whole movement of, mm. of people looking to, you know, take a bit more care and attention into what they eat, into what they drink, into, you know, into the, the things they put in their bodies. Uh, and you could see that at that point in time in London. You know, when Borough Market started in 99, there there might have been one or two other farmers markets maybe none and then you know 10 years later you know most boroughs have one or two every, every weekend in a, yes. in a school yeah. playground yeah oh yeah exactly you know there's one up near me every Saturday from 10 till 2 and it does really well you know there's places that have been going for years now and they've become part of a community and a hub but they you know they weren't around and those sort of places obviously gave you know a market to small producers who just wanted a different way of dealing and kind of selling what they make through a supermarket or things like that. Mm. Um, so that sort of movement had been happening here. You know, it was happening in it was happening in beer in America at that point in time. You know, small breweries were springing up for about the previous ten years, um, whereas cheese hadn't quite yet taken off there. Still struggling. Cheese in America is a Slightly hard sell. I mean, it's literally some, American cheese is literally a thing <laughs> that is derided the world over. Just the phrase. So, yes, yes. From a marketing standpoint, even exactly. Really American struggle. cheese is like one step up from that cheese in a tube. Yeah, I'm sure you can get American <laughs> cheese in a tube too if you if you really want. But um, the sort of artisanal cheese making. When did that come about? You sort of discussed earlier on that after the war and during the war, they basically realised that you could upscale cheddar production so a lot of milk was just going into yep. cheddar production so when did it recover after the war and when did people start experimenting a little bit more with cheese again it's on an upward curve now I think there's probably more new dairies opening now in the last 5-10 years than there have been previously um, I'm not too sure about the timeline of certain things but the oldest kind of um there are five or six producers at Neil's Yard who I know their processes kind of survived that whole um, what's the word the the shortages I suppose of, of World War Two. so things like the Crookham's Lancashire would have Always. like Graham learned that from his mum who you know would have been making those recipes before the World War probably you know on her own farm or she would have been working for somebody else and so there were two or three cheddar makers who would have had a traditional way of making cheddar that would have, again, have stretched back. Uh, Applebee's Cheshire would have been probably another one. There weren't many more, though. I mean, 20 years ago, maybe all, you know, quite a large proportion of small British cheesemakers would have been represented in Neil's Yard's shop. Yeah. And there might be, you know, 50 cheeses or something, which is a large number. I think, you know, maybe a bit less. Maybe 40 was the optimum number. But now that might be, you know, 10 or less percent of the amount of artisanal cheesemakers out there. Like, they now get to be able to pick and choose 
the ones they work with whereas before there wasn't much of a choice you know yeah. there were only four small artisanal cheesemakers in the country so you're going to buy their cheese aren't you so uh, but I, yeah there would have been a slow increase from you know the 60s or whenever the rationing sort of stopped 50s but, but then again, you know, I mean, that's there's also a whole pattern of people maybe, you know, industrialization kind of promised a lot to people. But then obviously all the jobs and things started appearing in cities, you know, countrysides suffering depopulation and stuff like this. And it's only more recently that kind of things have been set up to address this. Like there are more incentives now, I think, to set up a business in the countryside. Like if you want to set up a brewery, there's certain parts of the countryside where you can get, you know, you can get grants and things to help you know bring jobs back into to rural places um so i think and also you know people who have gone through a certain amount of time living in a city and then realizing that actually maybe they'd like to live in the countryside having you know maybe worked here and made some money or whatever and then moving out um it's probably a more recent phenomenon too so a lot of people who are kind of setting into to kind of taking over some of these sort of cheeses don't necessarily come from a cheese making background but just have been inspired to do that for the proper good life story the uh (laughs) partly or else they just like the cheese or or whatever but um yeah it's um these there's probably a split now uh maybe maybe there's only about 10 percent of the old english cheeses that maybe have a direct lineage back to some time before the second world war Hmm. and are these companies like you said that it's very hard to recreate that that texture, particularly the Lancashire, on a industrial scale, does that hold back cheese from becoming a bit more mainstream? Because obviously, if you go into a cheese section of a supermarket, it's it's bleak viewing. Is that because it's so much? It's so hard to create large batch quality cheese. I mean, so you know, I mean, if we're talking about brewing, we have an economy of scale that when you start brewing at larger batches, you can make things at a cheaper price. Um, and brewing does scale compared to cheese making it scales much more easily so you know if, if if you want to make something on a small scale to a certain degree you can scale up the size of production uh, and not necessarily affect the quality negatively too much you know I mean there's plenty of very 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 large breweries that we all know that can make really really good beer that's uh, not quite possible with cheese making so if you're talking about something that's being small and handmade in an artisanal sense it's A, it's affordability is not going to be something that we'll see it on a supermarket shelf regularly um, B, consistently consistency as well you know, mm-hmm. might be something that's not as it's not as repeatable as, as an industrial cheese um, and the third thing is it will require more looking after um, yeah I mean if you have a mass produced cheddar that's been wrapped in plastic since the day it was born then it living its life in plastic in your fridge is not going to be an issue whereas if you put something like this in plastic in your fridge it, it's you know five days later it's you know well it'll taste like plastic and it'll sweat and it'll you know it'll, it'll just it's not pleasant um so in that sense, I suppose it's a bit like something like Cascale, you know, something that needs looking after. You need to have the right people at the point of dispense looking after it, you know. If you have a piece of cheese that's a bit tired, you have to, you know, trim off the dry bits on the outside. You know, you have to be 
on top of how each cheese is tasting. In the same way that if you're looking after your cascale cellar, you want to check, you know, how long has this beer been on? You know, how exposed to oxygen has it been? You know, is it going to pull through? Are we going to sell it today? Or you know, should we pull it off? And whatever. I mean, there's a separate issue, I suppose, is, is slightly more to do with, you know, how industrial cheese making can make things so cheap. You know, if you get used to milk being or cheese or butter or whatever being as cheap as it is in a supermarket and you start asking yourself you know how how is that possible in a sense it's not really you know we pay the costs of all that sort of production through you know environmental degradation for example that you know we'll end up paying more money to try and you know help the environment recover from you know mm-hmm. the practices of, of you're just shifting of, the of cost corporate, elsewhere, yeah. corporate farming yeah yeah exactly um, but that's you know, that's a whole other kettle of fish. Um, but the, uh, the the French are able to have quite a good selection. Is that just a, a different model where they're buying from local producers and the turnover is probably quite quick in France, where cheese is yeah probably a table staple every meal. Really, the, the, the culture that that cultural relationship between cheese and people, I suppose, is, is kind of is it's stronger there. Again, without industrialization, they kind of push people further away from the land. It, it didn't happen in the same way in France as here. So, A, there's more different cheeses with specific local roots and origins around available to people, and people you know, have it as part of their culture growing up, just in a way that we had lost here. And the same, you know... I mean, I grew up in Ireland, so there's no, apart from Guinness, there's no, you know, even a drink that you have a relationship to. You know, whereas here, there are still places that you could grow up and still have been drinking, say, Batham's Bitter from, you know, if you grew up in Wolverhampton or something that has the tradition that your father might have drunk and your grandfather. And that, you My know, dad's his beer door, so he went French. That's depressing. <laughs> That's no good. <laughs> um, you know, employment law in France means that people are generally paid better and have slightly more... Like cheese does not seem as expensive in France as it does here, but that's to do with a lot of reasons. To do with uh, either perhaps subsidies or to do with, but even it's just to do with also what people think something is worth. If you grow up thinking that the price of a kilo of cheddar in a supermarket is normal, then everything here on this table is going to seem really expensive. Yeah. Whereas if you grew up thinking that that's normal, well then that's normal. You know, if you go down to a, if you go to Madrid. Somewhere where you know you you find you know legs of Spanish ham hanging, you know, in a delicatessen, which is somewhere that everybody will shop, and they'll have ham that costs ten pounds a kilo, and they'll have them that costs two hundred pounds a kilo, and you know everything in between, depending on what you want to spend. It's just there as part of somebody's culture. It's not something that somebody would even blink at. It's just, what do I want today? Yeah. And, you know, a lot of the time we've had that that choice removed by industrialization which is just driving down prices and driving down quality uh, in beer also as as in you know as in cheese i'm sure you've come across the odd person who decides that anything more than five pounds for a pint for example is outrageous no yeah, yeah. Okay, maybe these people oh, no no <laughs> it happened to me at lunch today i was sat there having a beer and somebody was moaning about this beer costing 650 a pint and it was an 8% beer, so I was like, that's oh. a bargain. But the guy next to me was like, that's an outrage. And yeah, exactly. There has been there that, you, you know, the bastardization of beer and cheese, evidently, where it was, 
a sea of continental lagers on the bar. They all cost between you know three pounds and three pounds fifty. Pre- premium was a matter of like three or four percent, yeah, not, and, <laughs> not and, and people didn't three or four quid. want to spend any more than that. And you know we work so much with Belgian beers, and you see all these different strengths and the weird and wonderful, and they are a lot more willing to pay a little bit more if it's a different beer. Whereas we're finding our way now, definitely. And the craft beer scenes help that, and the same with cheese. But when you go into a supermarket and you see a a lump of cheddar and it is that cheap, then it's obviously hard for people to make that realization that actually cheese can cost, you know, ten, twenty quid. Yeah, and I, I even find myself quibbling when when I'm buying some cheese in the supermarket and you see that one's fifty p more than another, and you start to quibble, you start trying to price save on fifty p for some really crap cheese that you're, I don't know, you're only getting in to put on top of a pasta bake or something. <laughs> it's mad. Then, yeah, it the thing is, with any of those questions, you, you can't really make a decision until you know what's actually behind that. You know? <laughs> yeah. Like, well, is it just marketing that makes this one more expensive? Is, is one just being priced differently for reasons of, oh, I'm a premium product, so I'll, you know, I'll be reassuringly expensive? Or yeah. Whatever. Or is there a reason that you should, you know, that you should know about that this, you know, one's made by a, a factory, one's made by a, a farmer or whatever? But it's without having that information. It's just really. I mean, that's when. That's why you know when you want a good beer, you go to a specialist beer shop. You go to a you know a pub where the people know what they're putting on. If you want cheese, it doesn't really make sense not to go to a specialist cheese shop. When I first moved to London, I remember 2012, and the first day I moved here, I walked into a bar, and there was. A pint on for seven pounds fifty, and I, I couldn't get my head around it. And I was like, <laughs> if, you ever, if you ever catch to. me spending that amount on a pint, you know. And then fast forward like six months, and I was doing it. You spent it on a third. Can you, get, <laughs> can you guess what the beer was? Cheers, punk IPA. No, it was a Colonel IPA. Oh, was it? What? Yeah. <laughs> really? And it was delicious. That was a bargain. <laughs> thing that comes into play i think and you know it, it's another it's a truism when you're when you're having beer and or wine and cheese certainly that you know that a wine that comes from the same area as a cheese or a cider that comes from the same area as the cheese you're eating they tend to work um and because most of the cheese we eat tends to be british in origin it's undeniable that they tend to work yeah better with British styles, um, yeah. If you kind of Charles Darwin's diaries on the voyage of the Beagle have him, you know, celebrating any special occasion with a lump of Cheshire and a bottle of porter, um, those sort of things, you know. Did we cane all the Lancashire? I, better get some I, think, I think you did. Uh, There's, oh, well, we can just we'll go with Stilton instead. I, I just had oh, the, um, um, the Lancashire, thing. but uh, yeah. Just our porter, we put too many New World hops in it, so it doesn't always quite work for 
for, for English cheese purposes. It works in every other way possible. But the export stout, that's actually what we're brewing today. So it kind of works because you can smell it. You know, you can smell the... Yeah, it's everywhere, isn't it? ...coming yeah. from there. Um, but those sort of beers, just that, you know, thick, rich, sort of with that, you know, the slightly smoky, slightly leathery, tarry tobacco sort of overtones with anything kind of old-fashioned in English, sort of Lancashire, Cheshire. But they're quite generous to any hard cheese, so even the cheddar or... I haven't tried the blue yet, actually, so... It, it works with the export stout. It makes it the export stout really sweet. Stilton really rounds yes. off the roast. Yeah. yeah. So after your trip to America, in, back, back in 06, back in 07? 07. It was obviously two years until you got the brewery going. Was it just sort of the sheer inspiration of sort of what you saw out there that sort of led to it? Yeah. Cause in, in well, I mean, that was one thing. The other thing was, well, the first thought was, so where is this back here? And the second thought was, well, it's not really. Hmm. So we'll have to build it. You know, it's not that it wasn't. It's, you know, the places in London to find good beer in those days were, well, the rake. Quite a few places focused on, say, importing. There's a good, decent Belgian places, you know. Um, yeah, the sort of places that, you know, maybe your traditional places like the Dove and Hackney or things yeah. like that. They've been around for generations that were good places to drink good Belgian beers. Um, but, you know, and uh, of the contemporary sort of breweries that were starting or had just started that were good it was impossible to find you know so if you wanted some Dark Star or Thornbridge or I mean Brewdog just started April 2007 so that's just when I was in America so they wouldn't really have been available but you know if you wanted some Dark Star or Thornbridge yeah, I wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> They're out there somewhere, but but where yeah. or how? You know, the White Horse would have had a lot of American beers on and a few other things. Um, but it was just, you know, you you could you could look or you could not look or you know you might stumble across something, but there wasn't there wasn't any where that was particularly inspiring. Not consistently. Yeah. In terms of, certainly in terms of British beers and in terms of something local and fresh. You know, that's the first lesson you learn when you come back from the States is, oh, hey, there's that brilliant IPA I tried in America and you grab a bottle and you drink it and you go. And it took me a while to realize, oh, that's what's wrong with it. It's six months old. You know, these sort of things. It took a while for that all to register. Um, and the fact that London had whatever 10 million people living in it and what five breweries six who was around in those days Young's had left so there was Mortlake Brewing Budweiser Fuller's meantime Twickenham Sandbrook's had just started it was five is it Pit, Pit, Pitfield Brewery were they I don't know were they there or are they gone I think they'd left already because huh. Mark was already brewing at Darkstar uh, in the basement of the huh. of the the pub in in the evening star in Brighton so I think they'd moved out Brodie's were they when did they start Brodie started yeah no they would have been from the year before we so about 2008 they took over so in a city that big it kind of felt like there should be somebody there who'd like to drink my beer <laughs> <laughs> so you were probably the first in the in London that was 
doing the American. I just knew we didn't know any bit. better. Right. <laughs> we didn't <laughs> really didn't know didn't know anything like, else. I'd, I'd so had this stuff in America, so I'm going to do that. That's beer, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. You naively yeah. reroute the the rule book and <laughs> beer production for the UK, really, because no one else re- had done anything like what you created with you know uh, yeah. ale with experimenting with different hops. Punk IPA was out. I remember discovering that just when I got back from the states, and uh, that was a that was an eye opening revelation. It was it was really fucking amazing in those days. Mm. Um, Thornbridge were around doing good beers and, and Dark Star. Um, I mean, more from the yeah, yeah. I mean uh, that that recipe way. That, that that yeah. I mean, when I was homebrewing, I used to try and clone Sierra Nevada. And then as you go along, you kind of you realize that your clone is just completely, you know. Most Sierra Nevada clone recipes have lots of crystal malt and, and Munich malt and various other things like that. Yeah, I think very close to the very beginning, we just dropped all of the colored malts. So our pails and IPAs are just Maris orders, nothing else. Mm-hmm. Um, and with the hops, it was just really when I was homebrewing, I could get access to like five different hops. And then when I became a commercial brewer, even you know, on 600 liters, you can call up Charles Farm, and then they have like 40. Oh, God. <laughs> okay, we'll have uh, five kilos of each, please. And then, yeah, we just, that's the only way we had to find out. We could have done a test batch, but it was like. You might as well just make it. I mean, it's only 600 liters. <laughs> yeah. It's the whole joy of having a small system. So, I mean, okay, if you're starting off, you don't really want to make a mess of anything. But at the same time, it's a hop. It'll probably taste okay. Let's try it. So that was just us trying to get to know different ingredients and different hops and things. Um, then we discovered at the end of the first year when the new season hop came in that they all tasted different. So we went through the whole process again. And so then that's still what we do. You know? And still we come across hops like Green Bullet we've never used before. There's one here called Idaho Gem. We have a bottle in front of us, which is the first time we've used that hop. So, you know, there's, all, there's always new things. Um, but obviously the process is something you want to try and work into some sort of... You want things to progress and develop. So, you know, the hops that we enjoy the most, they tend to come back mm-hmm. because it's not just a willy-nilly scattergun approach of trying lots of different things, you know. Something like Galaxy Mosaic, that we love those hops. We'll use them again as often. Not, not often. Um, and then you... <clears throat> so you moved... Well, well, actually, I think a lot of your homebrew stuff was stouts and, and that side as well that maybe didn't at the start get you the name... The, the, you got the name for the pale stuff, but you were still producing those stouts. Um, and now we just had a quick look at the amazing dark room when time stops, um, where all your wild stuff is happening. Um, is that a sort of a, a going full circle and going back into where you started with the cheese and where your dad being a, a microbiologist and stuff like that? Or was that another beer discovery rather than an, a, a cheese-related theme? It's probably a bit of both. I mean, certainly the way we look at beers that are maturing in barrels and the way we look at mixed culture fermentation beers, I think our, my approach would be closer to the way I would have approached cheese than the way I approach brewing an IPA or a pale ale. Like with an IPA or a pale, we do tend to... 
beers like that tend to be we tend to try and control the parameters in order to get a certain effect you know we want a beer like this I mean we're quite generous we don't have these specific targets that we want the beer to taste the same each time that's part of the, our enjoyment of it is not to reproduce ourselves directly but we have a certain idea often of what we would like to achieve um, and we can control that by controlling temperatures controlling fermentation controlling ingredients and things like that whereas the stuff that we put in through mixed culture fermentation and through barrel aging those things mature in a way that's much more similar to cheese so for example you know if we wrapped that Comte in plastic and shoved it in the fridge and left it there for two years it would be a 24 month old Comte it, it, it wouldn't have any maturation in the proper sense because proper maturation needs breathing needs interacting with its environment means like losing moisture getting more dense and certain processes happening an analogy would be you know if we had a beer like the pale ale left in a bottle it's sealed you know it can't really mature so basically the only thing that happens after two years is that that beer gets older and tastes more stale it's not a happy process whereas the mixed culture fermentation and the barrel aging allows a maturation to happen because the wood allows air to come in and out the wood holds things that it holds wild yeast holds bacteria it, it allows them to mature and develop through subsequent generations because they'll survive in a barrel from one batch to the next and so basically we end up reacting to what those barrels are doing more than telling them what to do so both in terms of kind of a healthy growth and development over time and in terms of our relationship with it, it's a much more balanced dialogue of kind of tasting a barrel, thinking about it, you know, whether it's in terms of how it might blend or whether it's in terms of what sort of dry hops this might enjoy or whether it's ready or whether it's not. We can't directly affect the end result in the same way we can with a pale ale or an IPA. So, yes, in that sense, it is closer to how we would have been maturing cheese at Neil's Yard um, but the impetus doesn't necessarily just come from cheese making it's because there is a beer making tradition that leads to beers like you know Cantillon Guz or whatever that you know the things that we really enjoy drinking um, I mean every brewery has to kind of struggle with that question a little bit but to try and kind of develop within your beers a sense of place a sense of where they come from so specifically with those cheeses the translation between what the animals are eating into their milk is there and the milk into a cheese is is there beer kind of muddies the waters a little bit because it's harder to get a direct correlation because ingredients are brought in from far away because we're using you know a municipal water supply which isn't necessarily the most exciting thing in the world but for us to kind of develop a sense of place in what we do those sort of mixed culture fermentation beers and beers that sit in barrels that have held generations of beers before is something that you know we like to think allows our beers to taste of themselves in a way that means they're from here they're from you know this railway arch in the Colonel Brewery specifically and could not really be repeatable anywhere else and uh, you know I think that's something we take specifically from cheese making that informs our brewing of these beers and that you know is part of the reason that we enjoy you know all these other mixed culture fermentation beers from you know wherever they come from because they express a unique sense of place 
Let's talk about beer, Johnny. Let's talk about AVB. Let's talk about Imperial Stouts and Imbib buyouts of Wicked Weed. Let's talk about beer. Let's talk about beer. Let's talk about beer. Let's talk about beer. So when we started this podcast, it was all about trying to get out the bubble and find out what other people think. But that was a slight cover for what I have, which is a fascination with how uh, beer, and particularly the craft of different things, feeds into everything else. So the threads that he took from understanding cheese that fitted just like a square peg in a square hole talking about beer was was fascinating to me and it's it's one of those things where you just you just unlock that keyhole and everything sort of falls into place so we we could do the same and i hope to with with wine with whiskey with gin all these different worlds where you think they're entirely different but the people making them are thinking the same things even if the ingredients or the scene or the thing that you do with it completely changes yeah it really amazes me how like cheese is sort of even more artisan than craft beer because you he talks about how you can't upscale it and you can really tell the nuances between different cheeses just from where it's from and he discussed with us you know the hills and in the french alps and how from valley to valley the cheeses are sort of similar because they're from similar cows it's similar pasture but it's ever so slightly different because of how it's handled yeah and those tiny differences in handling can make a, a difference to the cheese be it shape or texture or how much it's been worked and you can really see that in sort of Colonel's beer as well, that the tiny nuances and, I mean, they really paved the way as f- in, in the UK for me as far as never really bring the same beer twice because they wanted to work with, you know, the, the hops that were fresh at the time, that were right at the time, that they felt would maybe blend well. Um, and they're constantly sort of tweaking and changing, which I know maybe a lot of breweries do because, I mean, a lot of the craft breweries tweak their recipes a little bit, but they did so sort of obviously in your face yeah i mean one, one of the first rules you're sort of told when you found a, a craft beer business is you've got to have a core range you've got to be recognizable for something and and what colonel have achieved you know even outside of his wild beer is that you can taste a colonel beer and know it's a colonel beer it somehow has a sense of of place and yet he's broken every rule by never really producing the same beer twice yeah which is which is insane and we talk about how i mean this year is their 10-year anniversary so in 2009 when they started the marketplace was not what it is today it's so much smaller and i think that step was so so much braver because like you know punk ipa there's a couple of other breweries knocking around at that point but, you know not even camden existed yet he's like i'm not gonna have a core range yeah i'm gonna just change the hops and i'm gonna make my badges on some floor tiles <laughs> doesn't get much more artisan yeah. than that. Yeah, I think there's there's an interesting. You know, we're always trying to define craft, um, and I, and I'm not saying that I'm going to do that now. But no, um, but there's this interesting process where a new uh, a new fad or a new industry kind of crops up, like craft beer did. And what happens is capitalism comes in, money comes in, and they try to machinate everything. They try to make it a production line. And, you know, so he's watched Camden, Beavertown, um, Thornbridge maybe, or maybe they slightly... No, they were before Colonel. They were before. Um, but lots of breweries who have come along in the wake, inspired by what Evan's done, learned his craft, then slowly taken the human element, the, the time element, and the place element out. And that's not necessarily a bad thing for the 
the craft beer industry as a whole but what it, it is kind of bad for that brand because he's still producing something unique and of a place and of a time um and not quite handmade but still it it feels to me like an artisanal thing he does whereas the others have upscaled it and i'm not saying they've become cathedral city cheddar um but they've become a different thing to what he's doing yeah completely i actually find it very interesting which is not something i've thought about before about how that you can't really upscale cheese in the same way and that is why cheddar has become so big because you, you can, can kind of upscale it and he has sort of put that approach into how the kernel has been ran and i mean i don't think they've produced any more or less beer for the last three or four years although that might not be 100% factually correct, but they certainly haven't grown huge amounts or shrank. But they've just got to a size that they find sustainable yeah. and they can continue to work at that rate without having to really alter things like some people have. They've become the cheddar. Yeah. <laughs> this could be some brewers out there going, am I a cheddar brewery now? <laughs> um, yeah, what, what else did you learn about cheese? I think what I sort of really took away from it is that that Lancashire cheese was one of the best <laughs> things I've ever eaten in my life. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I learned I really like Comte. Um, but I, I think, kind of feeding into what you said about how you can't upscale it, it was the, the stuff you can't control in cheese is so much. Like, if it were, if it were a beer, it would be like, well, we can't really control, uh, can't really 100% control what grain goes in or what temperature um, or what speed the rake will go round. Um, and then we don't really control the hops. Uh, we know when they go in, but we don't know how long we'll have to leave it. It's just, it's totally m- mad to think that that could be a, a viable business <laughs> to run where you're just like, well, we just throw our hands up in the air and go. And wait. Oh, yeah, exactly. Wait which, and, and, and hope. And that's which, why they don't change much. But I love like, talking about it. And he was like, yeah, that's why people don't experiment as much with it because invested in quite a lot of time because if you, if you experiment too much and then you wait a yeah. year or two and it's like oh yeah this one's a bit shit actually you need to throw it in the bin I've, I've been working for quite a long time I should be coming out soon uh, on a story about Lambic and how people have finally started experimenting in Lambic because up until maybe five years ago no one did because you had to wait three years to get the result the people who were drinking it were pretty conservative in their tastes like they love Gers, they love Creek they love frambois that's about as far as it goes and Cantillon were the only guys that really sort of pushed it but then Tilcan came along um, got people like Boccarada um, and I also spoke to the uh, Baghaven part of McKellar where they're doing lots of interesting stuff uh, and Ub Beer Cell who have an insane range of different beers sort of in development but of all of those they've probably got five ten in development one will appear in the next two or three years and then another one will and cheese is probably the same way. It's just got to move so much slower because you don't know whether it's worked for years and most of them fail. Yeah, and I, that's the sort of good thing about the beer industry, it, especially sort of the pale ale market. You can churn it out so quickly. So, I mean, you might need to bin bits and pieces here and there, but you can, get it right, you can get it going quite quickly again, whereas you're invested in so much time and energy and skill into making cheese that you kind of don't want to mess with it too much. Yeah. Yeah, beer's a bit like, I don't know, like a 100-metre sprint. You've got some people going, woo, and then you've got a fat bloke in lane eight, and that's the Lambic just sort of pottering yeah. along, going at a different speed. Um, and he's, he's still beautiful to watch in a terrifying kind of way. 
But yeah, really fascinating chat, um, and a big thank you to Evan for having us over to the Colonel. Um, I had a great day there, drinking their beers and eating some really fantastic cheese. Yeah, guys, hu- huge thanks to the original Haysboro uh, <laughs> in Evan, um, uh, and it was an absolute privilege to sit down for a couple of hours and talk beer and cheese. Um, we don't know what our next episode is, um, <laughs> but we will announce it on Twitter fairly soon after this podcast so that you guys know. Uh, if you've got any suggestions, do get in touch on at Beer Channel and uh, youtube.com slash the craft beer channel. Uh, and of course, check out beermotions.com uh, if you want to buy beers on the internet. That's a, that's a business plan. That's literally what it does. <laughs>